I hate their worship services. God's people are hypocrites and counterfeits. From the leaders to the laity, they don't believe what they preach and they don't practice what they preach. Their enemies are more likely to worship truly than they are. They should just close up shop. You might expect these to be the words of a famous atheist like Richard Dawkins. Shockingly, however, it is a paraphrase of God's own reaction to Israel's worship in the days of Malachi. God is displeased with the half-hearted, lackluster worship of his people, and so he calls them to account. So we're going to see in our passage this morning in Malachi 1. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, written around 460 BC. Uh, And so to understand kind of Malachi, we have to understand how we got to Malachi. Around the year 2000 BC, the Lord called a man named Abraham to leave his country, to leave his people, because God was going to create a new nation from Abraham and his descendants. And so it was that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, Isaac had Uh, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, That family sojourned into the land of Egypt. They multiplied. Things were peachy until they weren't, until they were enslaved by the Egyptians. Uh, God bared his arm and his glory through the 10 plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea crossing. And this is around 1400 BC. God gave his people his law, He gave them his presence, and he covenanted, he committed to be their God, that they would be his people, that they would be, they they would live long in the land, if only they would obey. Yet, before they even got to the promised land, Israel was rebelling against the Lord. They grumbled and complained against him year after year, century after century, through a few good kings, but mostly a lot of bad kings, uh, Israel continually spurned God's law. So that rather than enjoying the covenant blessings of God's presence, Israel suffered the curses of the covenant, uh, culminating in their exile from the promised land in 586 BC. So in 586, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sweeps in from the north, sacks the city of Jerusalem, tears down the temple, and carried the Israelites into captivity. They were slaves once more. Uh, Yet beginning around 537 BC, so like 50 years later, after 50 years of foreign occupation and deportation, the Lord caused the Persian king Cyrus to issue a decree that allowed the Israelites to return back to their homeland. Uh, The curses of the covenant, which had fallen because of Israel's disobedience, well, they were being walked back. God was effecting a new exodus, as it were, a new deliverance out of slavery. And so those Israelites, those Jews began rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, uh, rebuilding the temple, and God's promise of restoration began coming true. But not exactly as Israel hoped. Sure, they were back in the promised land, But God's presence, his glorious presence, seemed noticeably absent from the temple. You know, there were the old men who who were there at the first temple before the 
sacking of Jerusalem, and they were children at the time, they come back as old men. They see the new temple, the one that's been rebuilt, and they just weep. They just didn't even compare to the previous one. God's glory is not there. The temple is, you know, I mean, it's okay, but it's nothing what it used to be. They again dwelled in Jerusalem, but the son of David wasn't ruling a global kingdom. Judah was an insignificant province in this massive Persian empire. God's people had finally kicked the idolatry habit. But what was to show for it other than a half-baked temple, Persian overrule, and the seeming absence of God's presence? Was this really all that God would do for his people? Was this really all that God had promised for his people? And so it's in the context of this disillusionment that Israel was experiencing that the Lord raised up Malachi to preach to them. So last week we saw in the first five verses that the Lord wanted to reassure his people of his love for them. He had sovereignly set his affection upon them. If only Israel would realize it, uh, yet they doubted God's love. And so we come to our passage this morning in chapter 1, verse 6. We really just kind of have, have one point. We're just going to walk through the end of chapter 1. Um, but the main idea of our passage is simply this. The Lord summons Israel, her priest, and the nations to fear his great name. The Lord summons Israel, her priest, and the nations to fear his great name. So our passage is just going to go to the end of chapter 1 in verse 14. So look with me, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, 
and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Amen. Well, you could title this this point, this sermon, Half-Hearted Devotion. Uh, You notice the Lord's rebuke there in verse 6. He begins with an analogy. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. Now, this is kind of the, the main complaint that the Lord has against his people. So let me encourage you this week, as the Lord gives you time, uh, read through the book of Malachi. It's only four chapters. You can totally do it. Uh, And you'll see that this is a theme throughout the book. Uh, God, his complaint against his people, and the priests in particular, is that they are failing to honor God and fear him. Instead, they are despising God's name. But before we get to to Israel's response, where they are incredulous at God's accusation of them, it's really important for for our passage today, and really the whole book of Malachi, that, that we see how last week's passage is the foundation of everything else that happens in the book of Malachi. Okay, so last week in the first five verses, we saw God's initiating, electing love. And so again, let me just say that if you neglect the importance of chapter 1, verse 2, you will misunderstand the entire point of Malachi. Because you'll think that the Lord is somehow calling his people to try to, uh, to try to earn God's love. As if they could try to get in his good graces by their right behavior. But when the Lord says in chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. Everything is meant to flow from that. Uh, God's not saying, hey, fix your life so that I will love you. He's saying, I've already loved you. And I've, I've demonstrated that love. And now in response, you should love me. You should fear my name. And that's, here's how that looks. That's what the book of Malachi is about. It's just really, really crucial that we see that it was God who first loved Israel. God's love was the initiating love. Everything flows from that. Israel is supposed to honor and fear and love God because of that. And yet, sadly, Israel was failing to honor and reverence God, and not just Israel in general, but specifically her priests. You know, the priests were the ones specifically set aside to honor and serve the Lord. Exodus 19 describes the whole nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests and that they were all supposed to be devoted to the Lord and to serving him. But think about it, guys. The the priests were the ones specifically set aside and set apart to worship God, to be devoted to his service. Uh, They were the worship leaders, as it were. You might expect that over the course of, of centuries, you know, the nation might decline in their religious affections over time. But surely the priests, surely they would remain committed and devoted to the Lord. And yet, sadly, that's not been the case. And so the Lord's point in verse 6 is simple enough, right? He makes an analogy. A son honors his father 
God says in Exodus 4 that Israel is my son. So where is my honor? And a servant fears his master. You priests and the nation itself are my servants. Why will you not fear me? The result of all this has been that Israel has despised God's name. They've treated God's name lightly. They've treated God lightly, as if he were an inconsequential thing. You know, there are some meetings, right, I trust in your life, that they're on your calendar. You set like six reminders for them. You make sure your spouse reminds you of them. You, you know that this is a really big deal. And then there are other things that, you know, it's on the calendar, but if it doesn't happen, no big deal. Oh, what is it with God, with Israel? Well, they're treating him lightly. And so they ask at the end of verse 6, how? How did they despise him? How were they treating him lightly? After hundreds of years of idolatry, in 460 BC, uh, Israel was finally worshiping the one true God and only the one true God. Uh, In 460 BC, in Malachi's day, they were finally, you know, at least committed to God's word. We see that in a number of points with Nehemiah and Ezra reading the Torah. Uh, They seemed to keep all the prescribed religious festivals and feasts. They said all the right things. And so they ask, how? Specifically, in what way have we despised your name? I I take Israel's question to be sincere. Uh, They are genuinely not aware of how they have despised God's name. And friends, that's what's so scary. Did you know that you can despise God's name completely unintentionally. You know, again, I I suppose some people do it on purpose. Uh, There are some people who openly openly mock the claims of Christ. You know, they would be happy to be described as those who deride God's name. They scorn, they mock those who trust in the Lord. They'd be quite happy saying, oh yeah, I'm the one who despises the Lord's name. But I trust if you pulled most people in Bedford, Uh, Most people in your community, that's not what they would say. Uh, They would say, no, 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 I I, I don't intend to do that. I'm not doing that. And yet, Israel here is an example of unintentionally, but actually despising God's name. In my notes, I I almost wrote uh, that they were disrespecting God's name. But honestly, that's not strong enough. God doesn't say to Israel, you guys are a tad unprofessional around me. Uh, You're just a bit too lax. Try stepping things up a little bit. No biggie. Uh, Just something to work on. No, he says, you despise my name. Friends, you and I can despise God's name without even trying. Imagine tomorrow night, you're at home, and the doorbell rings. And you shout from the inside, uh, sorry, we're too busy. And the doorbell rings again. I'm really sorry, we, we have lots to get done. And it rings a third time. Go away, we have better things to do. Do you think it would appease your spouse to say that you didn't mean to be so rude? 
Do you think your parents would be happy with such an excuse? Do you think the president of the United States would feel honored by your behavior? Friends, the incredible sobering reality is that by our sin, we all despise God's name. Anytime we devote ourselves to anything more than to our creator. Describing humanity, Paul says in Romans 1 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. In short, we dishonor God, we despise his name anytime we live for luxury cars or free sex or cheap, you know, whatever. Anytime we live for anything. I, I really just want this vacation. Oh, I really just want this spouse. Oh, I really just want this promotion. Whatever it is, we cheapen God's name and we think, oh, I'm just living the American dream. But in doing so, we exchange the glory of God for these other pursuits. We proclaim to the universe, I'd rather have this than God. What does it mean to despise God's name? Like, like why doesn't it just despise God? What, what is it about God's name? Well, his name represents the totality of who he is. It refers to his character and nature, his attributes and his actions. Uh, thus, the Lord's climactic revelation to himself, to Moses at the burning bush, you remember, was his name, uh, Yahweh. And then in Exodus 34, the Lord expounds more clearly what it means for God to be the I am, the Lord. Uh, so notice in, in Exodus 34, uh, he says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Okay, so what is the name of the Lord? He proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Friends, that's who God is. Do you know anyone like God? That's why our sin is so crazy. Uh, when Israel's priests dishonor him, as if there could be anything more amazing and glorious and worthy of our love and fear and honor than God. You see, the proper response to God's glorious unveiling of his goodness in the gospel and his name is worship. When we behold God's character and nature as epitomized by his name, we are to bow to the earth in reverential awe and adoration. That's how Moses responded, but that's not how these priests treated God's name. Notice how verse 7 says that they were offering polluted food upon God's altar. And then the Israelites respond, how have we polluted you? 
That is, by profaning God's worship, they profaned God himself. Beloved, when God attaches his name to his people, his word, his worship, or anything else, we need to pay attention. Because he's, he, once he puts his name on something, how we treat that thing is how we treat God. Which is also why loving your neighbor is so important. Because God's made everyone in his image. So the way you treat that person in the store, well, that says something about how you view their creator, how you view God himself. For these Israelites, they thought it was no big deal. It's just a table. I mean, come on. But in doing so, they were polluting, they were defiling God. Not in a, some ontological sense, as if you could pollute God, but they were treating him as such. In verse 8, we see that the nation, and in turn the priests, offered blind, lame, and sick animals for sacrifice. Now, the Torah explicitly prohibited such practices, uh, such blemished sacrifices, bringing them to the Lord. Instead, Israel is supposed to bring pure and unblemished, undefiled sacrifices. Because that's the whole point, right? It's called a sacrifice. And so if you give God the leftovers, well, that's not much of a sacrifice, is it? The, the point is that you give your best to the Lord, not the leftovers. Uh, when Israel was to give their, their year-old healthy male goats, the point is, God, I love you more than I love this goat. I love you more than I love my financial security. I entrust my family's well-being to you and not to this goat. For Israel, their sacrifices weren't very sacrificial. They were giving the leftovers to God. Far from being excited and zealous for the Lord's worship, they were reluctant and half-hearted. Now, again, I don't think they were trying to despise God's name. They were just living for other things, prioritizing other things. You know, perhaps you can hear the Israelites and even the priests insisting, uh, look, don't, don't go overboard. Uh, don't be fanatical. Don't be obsessed. You don't need to worry about it. Let's not go overboard. Why is God so demanding? It's okay. We can cut some corners here. Well, so God makes another analogy there in the second half of verse 8. He's already shown the craziness of sin in Israel, treating him as worse than a human father or human master. Then in verse 8, he says, present, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? You know, again, in short, God's point is, guys, you don't treat anyone like this. Uh, if you're going to the governor and you've got a big ask, uh, you want the governor to approve the new permit for the, the addition you're putting on the back of your house. You want the governor to install a speed trap on your street so that the cars don't go as fast. When you have a big ask, you bring a big gift. When you go to the local official, you might bring a small gift. But then when you go to the governor, you bring a big gift. The, the size of the gift is indicative of the, of the size of the estimation that you have for that individual. So how lowly must Israel conceive of their God? to offer him such lowly and lame 
gifts. Israel was giving to God the leftovers. Their obedience and worship was perfunctory and box checking. Brothers and sisters, we're all tempted and we're all guilty of this kind of half-hearted worship, aren't we? Uh, We might show up at church, but only out of sheer duty. We read our Bibles because we know we're supposed to. We pray, but it's to get it off our to-do list. We give, but reluctantly so. You know, why do we treat God worse than our human bosses, than our human relationships? If your manager said to you, hey, please get a presentation ready, you know, you would prepare. Uh, You would research. You'd work hard. You'd be diligent. You might stay up late. You might get up early. But when it comes to worshiping our creator and our redeemer, so often we are lax, aren't we? We're irreverent. Uh, So often our hearts are cold. We give to God the leftovers of our time and money and attention and energy. Christian, how are you seeking to make God the number one priority in your life in 2023? How are you seeking to make God the number one priority in your life this year? You know, in a society as busy as ours, I fear we can often give to God the leftovers. As a pastor, I feel this. So this is not something that, like, you know, you guys need to worry about. Uh, This is something that we all, we all want to grow in. You know, we stay up to date on current events. We check our social media and email. We work overtime for our jobs. We schedule calls with family. We watch television and movies. We work out and set goals to sleep more. We seek out continuing education. We take on extra projects to get a promotion. We take kids to sports and band and clubs and parks. We schedule vacations, travel the world, and neglect God. Again, we don't mean to. We're not trying to live for these other things and dishonor his name. With our words, at least we say we want to honor God. But if we're honest, our careers and our families and our friends and our comfort is what we really live for. That's what we're wholeheartedly devoted to. And that's the thing, right? Worship is only worship if it is a wholehearted response of awe and praise and adoration to God. It's a total commitment to God and his glory. So by definition, we can't go through the external motions of worship while having lukewarm and insincere affections and have it still be worship. Worship is total dependence and praise and adoration. It is either zealous and sincere And all out, or it is not worship at all. So friends, I hope you sing really, really loud when we sing. It's like one of my favorite times of the week. But I hope you do it with a heart that that means what you're singing. Don't don't just say the words. And if you catch yourself, just kind of going through the motions, just, just in that moment, just ask God, to align your heart and say, God, make me believe what I'm singing. Help me to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. Make this real to me. Uh, Here, God indicts the nation of Israel and her priests for relegating God to the back burner 
of their lives. This new year, what would it look like for you to make God the center of your calendar? How would your resolutions and goals change? Uh, Maybe over lunch today, maybe something to talk about with your spouse or with some friends. Uh, Or tonight during the meal together, uh, share with one another. What would it look like for God to be the the center of your calendar here in 2023? The Lord's rebuke continues in verse 10. It's really, I think, a climax. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God's point is that it would be better for you not to come to church not to come to the temple, not to worship at all. Because everything you're doing, O Israelites, is in vain. It is pointless, worthless. Why would God take pleasure in the obligatory, insincere, half-hearted, and begrudging worship of his people? And like, what about any of that glorifies God? And here's the tragedy, right? God's people are supposed to bring him pleasure. Uh, Like a father with his son. Uh, God does delight in his people. It's not that God needs our sacrifices or our worship any more than a father needs his two-year-old's drawings. Uh, No, of course not. The point isn't the father's lack. The point is the son's love. You know, his admiration and his esteem for his father. The external gift is simply the evidence of the internal affection and reverence. Or in Israel's case, the lack thereof. So verse 10 ends, I will not accept an offering from your hand. And then things get really interesting. Uh, Because God's been focused on the priests. He's been focused on Israel. But then we get a shift in verse 11. Uh, Look there. God says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 200 years ago, Some people boasted the sun never sets on the British Empire. But here, the Lord promises that a day is coming when people will be worshiping him rightly all over the globe. And you notice the contrast between, I will not accept an offering from your hand, O Israel, but in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. In short, the nations are going to get it Right. While you Israelites and priests defile and pollute my name by your insincere worship, a day is coming when people will worship me from every tribe and tongue and nation. And of course, this had been God's plan all along. With Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, it was humanity's default relationship with God. 
uh, one of praise and pleasure. After sin, the very first words of the Lord's rescue plan through Abraham, uh, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12, is that God promises in Genesis 12, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has always been about his name being great and the families of the earth worshiping him, not just one little family. Uh, God said as well in Genesis 22 to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The plan was for world blessing to come through the offspring that is the nation of Israel. And yet here we see that Israel has failed in their task of bringing people to worship the Lord. God's plan all along has been to include the Gentiles. But what's crazy about, I think, Malachi 1.11 is that God doesn't say, I will accept your offering and guess what? I'm going to start including the nations too. But God says, I won't accept your offering, and I will accept theirs. This hints at and points forward to the day when the temple doors would be shut permanently. As we saw a few months ago in Mark 12 and 13, God would visit destruction upon this temple in Jerusalem. The doors would be shut permanently, and God would no longer accept the worship of the nation of Israel for they had rejected their Messiah, King Jesus. Uh, God would take the vineyard of his presence and he would give it to others. He would give it to the nations. And so, brothers and sisters, praise God. It's incredible that there are people today worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in Zambia and Korea, Switzerland and Brazil, Pakistan and Ethiopia, England and Colombia, all rejoicing in Christ, the true and ultimate offspring of Abraham. He is the one who blesses all the nations. Friends, we live in an age where most Christians didn't get to see this the way that we get to with technology and travel. 24 hours a day, Jesus has people praying to him and worshiping him around the globe. From the rising of the sun to its setting, like we get to see this happening and we get to partake in it. And it's not just like, oh, wow, that's really nice. But God involves us in this program. Uh, you are getting to see the fulfillment of Malachi 1.11 as you make disciples in Bedford and share the gospel in Burlington and get together with your neighbors in Westford. You're doing the work of Malachi 1.11. We don't literally offer up offerings and sacrifices to God. Uh, Dave earlier pointed us to Romans 12, which talks about our, our whole lives being ones of worship. Hebrews 13 also says, Through him then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now I wonder how that sounds to you. That God's great name will be celebrated among the nations. That his name will be honored and feared and glorified all across the globe. I wonder if that sounds like great news to you. Or I wonder if that bothers you. 
maybe you're here and you're, you're not a Christian or, or maybe you are a Christian and, and you just, you think, why is God so obsessed with the praise of his own name? I mean, it seems prideful, self-exalting of God, selfish. How can God say, praise me, my name's going to be great, uh, but if you or I do that, uh, that's not a good thing. Why is it good for God to say, praise me, my name will be great, yet in the prayer of confession, we regularly confess the sin of exalting our name? To which I would say that it would be both unrighteous and unloving of God to do otherwise. It would be unrighteous and unloving of God to seek the glory of anything else other than his own great name. It would be unrighteous because if God had any higher goal or aim or aspiration than the praise of his name, he would be valuing too highly that thing. He would be wrongly elevating the creature over the creator. Uh, It is no virtue to delight in a McDonald's wrapper over a Van Gogh painting. Right? I mean, that's not a good thing. That's not wise. That's not righteous. That's foolish and disrespectful. And so Isaiah 40 says that all the nations are as a drop in the bucket compared to the Lord, as dust upon the scales. So that's all of the nations and all their glory. Should God love those things more than he loves himself? Well, God would be unrighteous to love us sinful, foolish, ignorant, wayward, finite, dependent, fleeting beings more than he loved himself. How could the Father, God the Father, love the universe, which hasn't been around very long compared to eternity? How could he love that more than he loves his son? Uh, The Lord Jesus is eternal and all-powerful and all-wise and love and holy, holy, holy and beautiful and gracious and long-suffering and patient and generous and humble and servant-hearted. It would be unrighteous for God to work for the praise of anything more than his son. Anything more than God. And then second, it would be unloving for God to work for anything more than the praise and greatness of his name. It would be unloving for God to promote anything more because we won't be satisfied with anything less. How cruel would it be for God to tell us to give ourselves to broken cisterns? To command us to invest our lives in the glory and praise and greatness of the New England Patriots. Right? They had a great 20 years, but then they'll disappoint you. Or, or your health and your beauty. You might have a great 60 years, but it will fade. Or, or peace on earth or having the perfect family. Those things could never bear the weight of our worship and adoration and our lives. They will always let us down if we live for them. 
It would not be loving of God to command us to devote ourselves to the imperfect and the fleeting. Meanwhile, the perfect and the pure stands by, ready to bless us and be enjoyed forever. So when God celebrates the praise of his name amongst the nations, we need to realize that he is celebrating our enjoyment of his name. Right? Because again, the whole kind of thesis of this passage is that when God wants praise, he doesn't want insincere praise. He wants like affectionate from the heart enjoyment and praise. So for God to command us to praise his name is to command us to enjoy his name. When God celebrates his name being great among the nations, he is rejoicing in our delight in his inexhaustible beauty. So, as Pastor John Piper puts it, the reason God seeks our praise is not that he won't be fully God unless he gets it, but that we won't be fully happy unless we give it. So, what's standing in the way from God's name being great among the nations? Well, verse 12 says it. uh, It's Israel. My name will be great among the nations, verse 12, but you profane it. What's stopping God's name from being worshipped and praised among the nations? It's Israel and her priests. By viewing God's commands as a terrible burden in verse 13. And by going back on their vows of gratitude and sacrifice in verse 14. You know, the priests were supposed to lead the nation in worshipping Yahweh. But instead they polluted it. And then Israel was supposed to be a beacon of holiness and love and devotion to the Lord for the nations to praise God, and they too failed. Far from helping to advance God's glory among the nations, Israel served rather as a hindrance. And you know, I mean, it's sad today, right? How often people's chief complaint about Christ and against his gospel is his people. You know, God desires his name to be praised in Bedford and Bulgaria and everywhere in between. And how often is an unbeliever's main objection to Christianity the hypocrisy and the scandals of the church and her leaders? Uh, Israel here was dishonoring God's name, uh, causing it so the nations did not see the glory and greatness of Yahweh, uh, but that they were They were confirmed, as it were, in their dishonoring of him. I have one pastor friend who regularly prays, Lord, kill me before I do anything to dishonor your name. Kill me before I do anything to dishonor your name. Uh, May God give us the grace to live God-fearing and God-honoring lives. Because one of the ways that we know whether or not we're doing this is what we see in verse 13. Referring to their sacrifices, the Israelites say, what a weariness this is. You know, these, these priests and the nation at large viewed obedience as a burden, something to be endured, not a delight. Is that how you view serving the Lord? One of the commentators in this passage really convicted me on this point, so I'm kind of just basically going to quote him. Uh, He brings up the point that there are some things in life that we delight to spend our money on, right? 
Um, maybe it's new shoes or a nice vacation. Uh, it's the latest tech or retirement account or new video game. You know, these are the checks that we are happy to write month after month. And then there are the bills that we hate to pay. Uh, college tuition and car repairs and visits to the dentist and parking tickets and so on. Okay, so here's the question. Where on that spectrum does giving to the Lord fall? Are you delighted to give to the Lord? Because it's your, your joy? Or are we like the Israelites? I guess I probably should give my time and my money. Ugh, but what a weariness it is. Where in your heart and your life do you view serving the Lord? God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, and he loves a willing and non-reluctant pastor, 1 Peter 5, because those attitudes demonstrate the supreme value of God over everything else. Dutiful obedience brings God less glory than delighted obedience. Dutiful obedience brings God less glory than delighted obedience. So saints, do you view time in God's word and prayer as a tiresome duty or a cherished delight? Is weekly worship with the saints the highlight of your week or the low light? Uh, praise God, we're not saved by the sincerity of our worship. Uh, we're not saved by how zealous we are. We all go through difficult and dry seasons. Uh, that's why we need each other. We need to fight for joy together. When our hearts grow cold, we need to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And so our passage concludes in verse 14. Look there, just even at the second half of the verse. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. When God had said in verse 11, my name will be great among the nations, somebody might have responded, well, is that greatness warranted? Is God really that great? To which God's reply is yes. Even as we saw in Psalm 47, the Lord is a great king. And thus great praise is fitting. There is a day coming when Yahweh's kingship and name reaches the farthest nations. When the rebels would lay down their arms and submit to the Lord's kingship. And brothers and sisters, praise God, that day has come through Christ. And so how should we respond? Let's, let's conclude with two points of application. First, what does it mean to fear God? Um, we're going to talk more about this tonight, so let me encourage you to come back to the Lutheran Church of the Savior at 5 p.m. We're going to talk more about it. But I, I really appreciated Dave's intro at the, at the beginning because it's really important that we note that when the Bible commands us to fear God, it's not commanding us to be afraid of God. A, a sinful fear of punishment, a kind of dread that leads us to avoid him. Right? So some, if somebody has a fear of flying, they don't press into like, oh, let's, get on a, let's hop on a plane. They avoid planes. Now, when God calls us to fear him, that, that fear of punishment has been removed. Fear, biblically, the fear of the Lord that God commends is an awe-filled, trembling, and overwhelmed response of love and admiration for all that God is. I, I, this is. This is so important. To fear God is to act as though he is the most important reality that exists. 
To fear God is to live as if we are ever before him, because we are. Uh, So if you want to come back tonight at 5 p.m., the Lutheran Church will think more about this. One theologian, Michael Reeves, puts it, For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. The fear that he calls for is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. And so second and finally, application point number two, we need a better priest. This whole passage is basically a list, a litany of all the ways the priests had failed the nation. They were supposed to purify God's people's sacrifices, not pollute them. Uh, they were charged to cleanse God's temple and altar, not defile it. Instead of living as if God were the most important reality, they instead lived for their own schemes, for their own half-hearted worship. And so here's the problem we face. We are as sinners in need of a mediator. The whole reason the Levitical priesthood existed is if If God is holy, how is he going to dwell with an unholy people? We need a mediator to go for us on our behalf. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, For he alone is the high priest who does for us what we need. He alone in his life was fully committed to honoring God's name. Isaiah 11 describes the coming Messiah as his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Showing how the Lord Jesus was totally committed to the praise and worship of God. He always lived wholeheartedly for the glory and kingdom of God's name. And yet he went to the cross. And there he made atonement for sin. His sacrifice was neither superficial nor cheap. It came at the cost of his own life. And then he rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven, and even now intercedes for his people. He pleads his blood on our behalf so that we can approach God, so that we can enter in his presence, so that if you will turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you will know eternal communion and enjoyment of God, not on the basis of your works, but solely upon the work of Christ. So now, Christians, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Christian, what temptations are you facing today? Do you struggle to be wholly committed to God and his glory? Do you sometimes feel like obedience is a weariness and a burden? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find help in the time of need. Let's pray.